This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today I'm so pleased to be joined by Dr. Kenyon Gradert. He's the author of Puritan Spirits in the Abolitionist Imagination, published in April of 2020 by the University of Chicago Press. Kenny is Assistant Professor of English at Samford University in the Howard College of Arts and Sciences. Kenny, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to get into this book with you. But before we do that, I wonder, could you share with us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I did my PhD in English at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, my specialty there was early American, 19th century American literature. And actually, this, this book we're going to be chatting about is based on my dissertation. After I finished up the PhD, I had a postdoc uh, for the Volkswagen Institute at uh, University of Heidelberg, their Center for American Studies. I spent a year there, and that's where I kind of turned the dissertation into a book and filled it out. And after that, I had another postdoc at Auburn University for a couple years, and then I landed a tenure-track position here at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, where I teach our American Lit Survey and in the core sequence. So, yeah. Well, that's great. So let's let's talk a little bit about the the overall idea of this book, Puritan Spirits in the Abolitionist Imagination. You know, your your book it kind of has two historical periods that it, it focuses on. It, it draws some parallels between the the English Civil Wars and the American Civil War, and it does so by by really highlighting some unexpected reading habits throughout history. So maybe to to dive into it, let's talk a little bit about the Puritans and who they were. In most English classrooms in America, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, you're exposed to the Puritans via Nathaniel Hawthorne and Arthur Miller. Um, But you've said that Hawthorne, for example, was was a bit of an outlier in 19th century attitudes towards the Puritans. How is that so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this always comes up anytime I discuss the Puritans in, in my classes with my students. That's usually Hawthorne or the Crucible is the first thing that comes up. And a lot of this, you know, it descends from H.L. Mencken in the 20th century. He kind of popularized beating up on the Puritans. But as you said, it's interesting because that was very much sort of a new attitude toward the Puritans that kind of resulted from this late 19th, early 20th century rebellion against this perceived Puritan heritage. So Hawthorne's attitude toward the Puritans, he was kind of uh, a black sheep in in Concord amongst his neighbors in terms of, and in New England more broadly, in terms of how they imagined the Puritans. rather than sort of the stern, iron-faced men that we meet in the Scarlet Letter or, you know, with Mencken and and Arthur Miller, sort of the political zealots, the sexual prudes, the prigs, etc. The early 19th century antebellum attitude toward the Puritans was one of profound respect and admiration. And in particular, what they respected in the Puritans was they imagined the Puritans as 
sort of the roots of all that was best in American society, in particular its democratic ideals and its sort of a revolutionary heritage that they felt had sort of sparked the American Revolution. And then in the 19th century, the story the book tells is how abolitionist and anti-slavery writers picked up on this, this perceived revolutionary Puritan heritage in the fight against slavery, where they said, you know, effectively, if we want to be true to our, our Puritan heritage, this heritage of, let's say, revolutionary dissent and nonconformity, protest against corrupt ecclesiastical and political powers, that's what they felt the Puritans sort of embodied for them. We need to protest slavery now in the 19th century. That's the best way to sort of keep this political and religious heritage alive. So in, the 19, in a nutshell, in the 19th century, for a lot of New Englanders, the Puritans stood for protest against corruption, protest against corrupt political and ecclesiastical power. That's where the English Civil War comes in, the revolutionary potential. That's that's so interesting. Now, maybe let's get a little bit of a cast of characters uh, going to this story here. So so we have some 19th century readers, some of these abolitionists, and then they have their the list of who who are some of the Puritan heroes that they are trying to find inspiration for their cause from. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this is where their vision of the Puritans is a little bit different. You know, when we talk about American literature and the Puritans and sort of how the Puritans live on in American literature, it's usually Jonathan Edwards who comes up or maybe William Bradford with the original Pilgrims. And quick side note, as you know, the Pilgrims and the Puritans, they aren't the same thing. But in the 19th century, they kind of get lumped together as this mm -hmm. part of the same New England heritage. But the, the cast of characters that the abolitionists are picking up on, it's not the Jonathan Edwards strain of Puritanism. They're looking back oftentimes to a much more transatlantic vision of the Puritans, sort of on both sides of the ocean. And in particular, the English Civil War, as I mentioned, Oliver Cromwell comes up constantly, which is yeah. quite interesting. And then there's other figures sort of who are orbiting around Cromwell during the Civil War whom get name dropped oftentimes. Um, Algernon Sidney, John Pym, Henry Vane, those kind of lesser known figures that were involved in sort of the regicide of the English Civil War, they get sort of embraced in uh, America's, Amer the abolitionist efforts to really decapitate King Cotton. There's this great uh, James Russell Lowell poem I mentioned. It's not a very good poem, but it's a very revealing poem where he celebrates uh, these figures of the English Civil War and he name drops Vane, Pym, and Sidney alongside Oliver Cromwell. And he celebrates their regicide effectively as a call to decapitate King Cotton in the U.S., sort of to revive that revolutionary spirit in the fight against slavery. So Cromwell comes up probably the most most frequently, which is pretty interesting, I find. And by King Cotton, we're not talking about the Puritan John Cotton. We're we're talking about the uh, <laughs> no, the no. mercantile uh, yes. economic uh, system that was was undergirding so much of slavery, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. Well, one of the things that is is driving the the book that you've written is this recent scholarly tradition of historical memory. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about what that means and why it's so important as scholars, both as historians and, and literary scholars, to attend not only to, 
to history, but to historical memory as a distinct yeah. area of study? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I mean, I think the first thing I think about, one very sort of practical, hot example of how important memory is these days is with the 1619 Project at the New York mm -hmm. Times and how much debate that uh, that sort of inspired and sparked. And um, the whole point of that project in many ways was to push against, pu push back against the date 1620, which has often been celebrated and mythologized as the sort of the greatest origin story in American history, which is when the pilgrims land at Plymouth Rock, right? Mm -hmm. This is another story that the abolitionists oftentimes celebrated. Um, George Bancroft, he was probably 19th century America's most famous historian before the Civil War, and he celebrated 1620 as the sort of the date where true America begins, sort of the best potential of America begins with the Mayfla Mayflower Compact and these religious and political outcasts who come to North America to sort of uh, embrace religious freedom and establish a new form of society based on an ideal. So Bancroft and a lot of others in the 19th century celebrated 1620 as this sort of moment where the best potential in America was born. Um, but with the 1619 projects there, it's effectively saying, you know, let's, let's, let's step back one year prior to 1619 when the first English ship of full of African slaves lands, lands at Jamestown. How does that change our sense of how American history works? Now, when we're talking about what's the difference between history versus memory, both 1619 and 1620 are important historical dates. And both are important for a full historical picture of American history writ broadly, right? But when you start talking about memory, how do we remember these stories? It gets to the question of narrative and storytelling. What do you think is the most important, most dominant story for America in our own time? And that's where in my book, I, I say up front these anti-slavery writers, in a lot of ways, they weren't good historians. And they kind of <laughs> knew, they knew that. They, they knew the full history of the Puritans. They knew that the Puritans did not have a squeaky clean historical record. They would oftentimes be the first to say that, yeah, the Puritans had their own ideals, but they also forced them upon other people and they weren't the most tolerant in their own day. But what I argue is that these authors were striving for what we in literary studies call a usable past. Rather, rather than good history, they are trying to tell a useful story about the past that can make the present better. Okay. So that's, and I think you, you can think of the 1619 project in certain similar ways. There was a lot of debate about, well, this isn't, is this good history? Is this selective history? And I, I, one of Nicole Hannah-Jones's responses was, well, I'm not doing history, I'm doing journalism. And mm -hmm. I think her bigger point was, I'm trying to tell a new narrative, a new story, a new memory about American history, sort of something, a new story that can force new conversations in the present and do good political work in the present. So, and I think, you know, I think a lot of these abolitionist writers in the 19th century were trying to do the same thing. They were trying to tell a new story about American history that could improve the present. Hmm. If that makes sense. 
That does make sense. Now, building on some of those ideas, your book deals with Puritan attitudes to gender and sexuality, but among these abolitionist readers, that had some, we could say some ambivalent or some um, some different kinds of outcomes than, than might be expected. It wasn't always yeah. a very uh, conservative or patriarchal kind of project. Could you talk a little yeah. bit about that that theme? Yeah, you bet. That's a great question. And I mean, that's that's one of several respects in which the book, it's trying to it's trying to give us a sort of an unexpected side to how the Puritans have been remembered. As I mentioned, they t- these days they tend to get remembered as either political bigots and zealots or as sexual prudes and patriarchs, right? I think of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaiden's Tale. She says she was inspired by sort of New England Puritan history there. But when we look in back into sort of these antebellum abolitionist writers, there's there's interesting things going on in how the Puritans get remembered in terms of gender. Now, one of the things that they often admired about this Puritan heritage was what they called its manly qualities. So John Brown is uh, probably the most important figure here. John Brown, the sort of anti-slavery vigilante, he comes to national infamy in Bleeding Kansas when he and his sons, they drag pro-slavery settlers out of their beds and they hack them to death with broadswords, execute them with pistols. And then in 1859 with Harper's Ferry, where they try to sort of commandeer a federal arsenal and they're stopped and eventually he's hanged for treason. And John Brown sparks this huge national conversation about was this guy was this guy a moral hero or was he a terrorist? And even amongst people who were sympathetic to the abolitionist cause in 1859, a lot of them were horrified by John Brown. But then uh, a inf- very influential group of authors, Emerson, Thoreau, Wendell Phillips, Lydia Maria Child, they kind of leaped to his defense with this concerted literary efforts to rescue his legacy and to celebrate him as a moral hero and also to use his his story and his eventual martyrdom what they cast as a kind of sacred martyrdom to inspire the rest of the nation to pick up his cause and go go to holy war against slavery okay so when you read how they were praising john brown one of the most frequent adjectives that comes up is manly john brown's sort of manly resistance to slavery and even Lydia Maria Child, even many of the women who leaped to his defense, used, reached for this word to celebrate him. And the implication was what they seemed to be mean by his manly religiosity is the fact that he was willing to do something with his religion. He was willing to take up arms and fight for what he believed. So that's, that's what they seem to mean when they celebrate his manliness, Okay. Now, for those of us in the 21st century, we kind of cringe a little bit at that term, like equating manliness with this sense of willing a willingness to do something with your with your principles, right? Um, and a lot of these, a lot of the men who use this language, they kind of get excited about Brown for these these virile masculine qualities that they felt that they themselves may have lacked in their hesitancy to act upon their principles. Okay, And so the first chapter of the book looks at some of the guys who celebrated John Brown for these reasons. Emerson, uh, Thoreau, Wendell Phillips, one of the lesser known but very famous in his day abolitionists. But then in chapter two, I look at at female writers. And this is where it kind of gets interesting is that 
these these women abolitionist writers they they seize upon this perceived masculine puritan heritage but they kind of use it for interestingly proto-feminist causes so lydia maria child is my big example here where she celebrates brown as this manly puritan but then she calls upon american women to adopt this legacy for themselves and to become sort of holy warriors in the abolitionist cause as well. She writes this great sort of short story that hasn't gotten near enough attention. It's called The Kansas Emigrants, and she serialized it, hoping it would influence the next presidential election. I call, I call The Kansas Emigrants a proto-feminist anti-slavery western. <laughs> and to, just to be as brief as possible, the plot is this. There's two women from New England. Their husbands get inspired to go west to join the anti-slavery fight in Kansas. Kind of inspired by what Brown's doing in Kansas. And the husbands explicitly say something to the effect of, you know, if we want to honor this Puritan pilgrim Mayflower heritage that we've always professed to idolize, we've got to go west and take up arms against slavery. And their, their wives are hesitant at first. They're leaving all the comforts they know behind, but they go out of this sense of duty to this shared heritage, and they describe going west as sort of this new Mayflower journey out west to establish this new kind of religiosity and this new sort of uh, moral society in this incipient uh, society of the west. And then it get, once they get to Kansas, things get interesting. The women really rise to the occasion, and they get increasingly militant in their battle against slavery. So they have these border ruffians who start to terrorize the anti-slavery settlers. They try to set up an anti-slavery printing press. The border ruffians destroy it. Um, but the women start to really rise to the occasion here, where uh, at one point in the story, these women literally start training an all-female anti-slavery militia to be prepared in case these border ruffians try to sort of terrorize the women. And at one point, one of these women even uh, smuggles arms, smuggles ammunitions behind enemy lines by hiding them under her skirt, <laughs> right? And it's constantly getting cast as this is the way that New England women can live up to their glorious, sacred Puritan heritage. And this wasn't just Lydia Maria Child. Even back in, in Boston, Maria Weston Chapman, she's another sort of, of the primary characters I look at. She was sort of the one of the big leaders for the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society. And if you read her writings, she's constantly calling upon her fellow New England women to honor the, honor the legacy of their pilgrim Puritan foremothers. She actually uses that term instead of forefathers. She says, mm -hmm. let's honor our pilgrim Puritan foremothers in the battle with slavery, right? And she often use, adopts this kind of militant rhetoric of holy war, at one point, uh, there's talk of describing these anti-slavery women as new Debras in jails, sort of mm -hmm. these Old Testament figures of feminine resistance to corrupt power. All of this gets wrapped up into this rhetoric of women taking up a Puritan heritage of holy war against corruption for their own sort of proto-feminist, I would argue, causes. Um, just very briefly, the last thing I'll say, Julie Roy Jeffries, she calls women 
the great silent army of abolition. Women were usually at the forefront of the abolitionist movements. Um, you know, I think of, if you look at Concord, Emerson, Thoreau, Amos Bronson, Alcott, they actually were a little bit slower to jump on the anti-slavery cause. And many of their, their mothers and their wives and their daughters were actually the first to found these anti-slavery societies before the men got on board. It's interesting to see how they're sort of adapting this, this usable past of Puritan holy war for their own, their own efforts to organize against slavery. So in terms of the gender dynamics, it's interesting. You see them sort of, sort of reaffirming these traditional gender categories of manly equals militant equals willing to fight for your principles. But then you also see women adopting this, these ideals for themselves in mm. ways that they often got critiqued by men for doing. So it's kind of a long answer to that very interesting question. Well, it is, it's such an interesting juxtaposition of a, of a kind of very conservative and a very progressive ideal being yoked together at the same time, which I think is part of this story of the, the memory of the Puritans um, writ large. You have these two very different traditions across the centuries uh, of, of the Puritan heritage, a theological and a social history. And that, that really comes to a head in the the, the Beecher family. And the Beechers are so interesting because, so this is the focus of my fifth chapter. It's kind of a close look at Harriet Beecher Stowe, who's best known for Uncle Tom's Cabin, and her brother, Henry Ward Beecher, who's a little bit lesser known these days, but uh, his one of his biographers, Debbie Applegate, she his her biography of Henry Ward Beecher, she calls him the most famous man in America. He, uh, he was probably the most famous preacher in 19th century America, his Brooklyn Plymouth Church. He called it Plymouth Church sort of in honor of his, his Puritan heritage. It was regularly drawing thousands of congregants to it. Um, him and maybe, maybe Theodore Parker can compete for the title of America's most famous preacher before the Civil War. Um, so I look at them in Chapter 5 because... Both of them were wrestling with what it meant to honor a Puritan heritage that they took very seriously and they were taught to respect and cherish, in particular by their father, Lyman Beecher, who was probably one of America's most famous preachers before his son, Henry Ward Beecher. Okay, And Lyman Beecher, he's kind of famous as one of sort of the, the first figures in American religious history for how traditional Protestants would reinvent traditional Protestantism to keep up with the times. The classical example of this is disestablishment. There were calls to disestablish the official Congregationalist churches in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Lyman Beecher resisted those calls. He felt that they, uh, uh, these states needed a strong Congregationalist state church to keep this Puritan heritage alive, one that he very much valued, not just for sort of his own ancestry, but for its theological legacies as well. But then eventually uh, the Congregationalist church does get disestablished, and Lyman Beecher kind of does this famous 180 where he says, okay, if the church is disestablished, maybe actually this is a great opportunity to reinvent traditional Protestantism in America to revive it and keep up with the times. And he does, he does really well with this. And so, so does his son, Henry Ward Beecher. So you can think of the Beecher family as kind of these creative Protestants who are, who are 
always trying, but there's always a tension there because they're always trying to hold on to a Protestant, in particular Puritan heritage that they value very deeply. But they are also recognizing that if you want to keep this heritage fresh and alive and vital and relevant in the 19th century, it'll need to be reinvented. Okay. So Lyman Beecher, he does really well with this, but in the next generation with his daughter and his son, Henry Ward Beecher and Harriet Beecher Stowe, they have a more sort of psychologically fraught uh, process with this because for them, Protestantism, it's not just the church. It's not just the theological tradition. It's dad, right? (laughs) Their, Their father embodies this. And so any attempt to, let's say, rebel against this Puritan heritage or reimagine this Puritan heritage is implicitly rebelling against dad and reimagining dad's legacy, right? So there's this very interesting sort of psychologically fraught process that we see in both of their careers where they're trying to hang on to their Puritan heritage, but they're also trying to to sort of get rid of what they view as its most negative legacies and update it for new times. And in both of them, what they feel that the Puritan heritage sort of suffers from is a lack of heart. And this is where they're kind of uh, affirming this sense that that Puritanism was a somewhat rigid heritage, a somewhat stern heritage. And what Harriet Beecher Stowe is trying to do in a lot of the writing after Uncle Tom's Cabin, she's trying to salvage what she sees as sort of the inherent democratic quality of Puritanism and its revolutionary quality of Puritanism. But she's trying to soften it and, and update it to new times with more heart. And more sort of uh, what we would today call sentimentalism, an emphasis on the sentiments and the role that the heart plays in society. And her, her brother's trying to do this at his church as well, in his sermons and, and behind his pulpit. He's trying to sort of preserve, preserve Protestantism, but give it more heart for his audience and for his congregation, right? They're, they're trying to imagine what I call la belle Puritain, sort of this French term for a beautiful Puritanism. And it's a term that Harriet Beecher Stowe uses in one of her lesser known novels, The Minister's Wooing, where she's it's it's about sort of this very this very loyal Puritan maiden who's who's who has to sort of listen to her heart and eventually protest against what she feels as the rigid doctrinaire qualities of the Calvinism in which she's raised, right? So Stowe's basically trying to, they're, both of them are trying to update this Puritanism with more heart in the present day. And my argument is they're trying to update, they're trying to hang on to Puritanism, but also stretch it into the 19th century in its most palatable forms. And in the end, what you see in Harriet Beecher Stowe and Henry Ward Beecher, really, they keep telling themselves they're Puritans, but they're they're really not. You really have to stretch the imagination to see. Yeah, you really have to squint to see anything that resembles Puritanism in even the most modest sense in both of their lives. But they don't admit that. They don't want to admit that because that would imply sort of an, uh, an abdication of their their father's legacy. Right. Mm. But but both of them were huge in the anti-slavery movement. And they're doing what all these other anti-slavery writers are doing, which is trying to reimagine Puritanism in new, more exciting, more palatable forms in a way that speaks to the present crises and and struggles at hand. 
I wonder if as we we kind of close our discussion on the book, especially in the person of Herman Melville, you see a kind of disillusionment about the adoption of some of the radicalism of the Puritan spirit on the on the other side of civil war. Yeah, so this comes from the book's epilogue. It focuses on Herman Melville's Civil War poetry called um, Battle Pieces. And in those poems, he basically imagines the Civil War from a, a tragic perspective. He kind of imagines it as America's fall from innocence. This is America getting sort of kicked out of its Edenic paradise into this post-lapsarian tragic sin-filled world where they realize ideals can lead to tremendous violence and bloodshed. So Melville has a very, like, like Hawthorne, like his friend Hawthorne, Melville and Hawthorne both were extremely skeptical in certain regards of their New England neighbors and their propensity for what Melville and Hawthorne saw as holy war, right? Yeah. And I mean, this is an accurate reading of what abolitionists were imagining. The, the rhetoric they used was often a celebration of holy war. This is what made their, their writing oftentimes exciting for antebellum audiences to read. This is what made Wendell Phillips and William Lloyd Garrison exciting. It was a call to arms. It was a call to spiritual and moral warfare against the corrupt power. Hawthorne and Melville in particular, after the Civil War, are sort of looking back at all of this rhetoric of holy war and effectively saying, look at what happened. You got your holy war, and it led to, led to 500,000 soldiers dying, and it, it almost ripped the nation apart. And, you know, Melville, Melville was against slavery, but he, he saw the war as this, this tremendous tragedy in many respects for how much bloodshed and lasting sort of animosity it led to. Mm. And so in battle pieces, he, he wants to sort of coax Americans away from this hot idealism that he saw in his New England anti-slavery neighbors. And he wants them to sort of <laughs> cool down and recognize that holy war comes with consequences. It comes mm. with violence, it comes with bloodshed, and it comes ultimately with tragedy. And Melville, he kind of ultimately hopes in battle pieces, he hopes that this fall from grace, this, this American fall into tragedy will sort of force Americans to reckon with the, the, the preciousness of their democracy and come together sort of with the common knowledge that uh, idealism can often come with unexpected bloodshed and violence. Now, I use battle pieces to basically ask, well, is Melville right? Because this is the, this is the lasting question that people are still debating today. Was uh, the Civil War tragic or was it a moral victory against slavery? And that debate is still going today. Ta-Nehisi Coates, I mentioned him in the epilogue, he wrote a piece for the Atlantic, The Civil War Wasn't Tragic. But then you have other voices and other scholars saying, well, it's, we can't too quickly scrub away those 500,000 fallen soldiers. That is the most uh, casualties of any American conflict to date. And it's, uh, it's more than most of America's subsequent military conflicts combined. So a lot of other people say, well, yes, slavery ended, so that was a great moral victory, but it also came at a great cost to the nation. So uh, is it tragic or is it heroic? 
I ultimately say it's both. I think Melville gets it half right. And I think his anti-slavery neighbors get it half right. Um, this is where I, this is where it gets a little bit theoretical, but I turn to Raymond Williams. He's this Marxist philosopher who I think actually helps, helps me make sense of the abolitionist's ultimate legacy. He has this book called, uh, Actually, I'm forgetting the name now, but it's, it, it's the effect, effectively on tragedy and revolution. And he says every revolution indeed comes with tragic elements where revolutionaries, the whole point of a revolution is revolutionaries like these anti-slavery writers, they have to sort of tell a simplistic story of good versus evil. They have hmm. to cleave cleave their society into good guys versus bad guys. They have to draw battle lines that are simplistic and that inevitably sort of cover up the, the greater complexity of what's going on in history and the greater tragedies that are happening, where oftentimes people are getting caught in the middle of these conflicts or revolutionaries are too quick to celebrate moral victory and they're too hesitant to recognize that this victory comes at a cost. Raymond Williams basically says it's both. The revolutions are a working through of a tragic sort of disorder in society where he basically says we can celebrate the progress that revolutions have brought about without needing to sort of close our eyes to the tragedies that came with revolutions, right? Hmm. We don't have to either view the Civil War as a tragedy or as a great moral victory. Williams argues it's it's both, and he argues all revolutions come with this this mixed quality. So that's kind of how I end the book. For me, Williams was the most helpful in thinking through what is the ultimate legacy of abolitionists' call to spiritual warfare, yeah. and the the civil war that res, that that partially resulted from their call to arms. Wow. Well, what a, what a journey we've been on. And I'm just so thankful for you taking the time to come and, and share about this book. Before we let you go, I wonder, what are you working on next, Kenny? Yeah, so I, I'm interested in Herman. You know, I end the book on Herman Melville, which kind of sent me down a rabbit hole of Melville studies. And <laughs> I'm currently working on Melville's rediscovery in the 20th century. Um, hmm. You know, he kind of dies fairly unknown at the end of the 19th century. And it's not until the 1920s in particular where people start rediscovering him. And then there, you know, with the, the, the great first Great War, the Great Depression, and then eventually the great dictators of the 20th century who have a lot in common with Captain Ahab, right? <laughs> Melville kind of gets rediscovered and explodes with this new prophetic relevance into the 20th century. So I've been digging into some of these figures who were crucial for rediscovering Melville and how he suddenly has this new relevance in the 20th century. So again, it's got that similar element of sort of this cross-historical study of how certain cultural legacies get revived and reimagined in new times. Well, that sounds like a, like a really interesting project, and I can't wait to, to see it come to press. Well, the, the conversation has been with Dr. Kenyon Gradert author of Puritan Spirits in the Abolitionist Imagination. You can get your copy now from the University of Chicago Press. Kenny, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the New Books Network. Visit newbooksnetwork.com where you can browse our library of over 12,000 episodes in whatever subject you might be interested in. But that's it for now. I hope you have a great day.